Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, AKA Possibility Man. Our core values include I am, I can, and I will. We bring guests who are committed to bettering people's lives and serving as a force for good in the world. Today we have Dr. Sharon Raymond. She is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and she holds a medical doctorate from Yale University and an MBA degree from the University of Pittsburgh. She is a board certified obstetrician, gynecologist, OBGYN, and founder of Today's Woman. Dr. Raymond, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, I know your passion is women's health, so we'll keep that as our focus broadly conceived, but I do have some other questions for you. Well, let me, let me say, as, as I learn more about you, I discovered that your patients have many wonderful things to say about you. For example, one of them said that Dr. Raymond is extremely attentive and caring. I feel lucky to have her, to have found her. Another said, best gynecologist in Center City, Philadelphia. And a third said, great doctor. She listens and is very attentive. So how do you explain the passion that your patients have for you? I don't think I feel this way about my doctor, but they feel this way about you. I think that there's something very intimate about the GYN exam. Mm. And when a woman finds a doctor that she feels comfortable truly revealing herself, because that's what happens with the GYN exam. There's probably no other doctor that you go to that you literally have to take your clothes off and spread your legs. Mm. That's a lot to ask of a person in front of a total stranger. And when that doctor has the ability to not only um, do the exam in such a way that you don't feel intimidated or offset by the whole experience, then it's a good experience. That's fantastic. Yes. Okay. So Dr. Raymond, um, I want to know about your journey to becoming a medical doctor. I know that uh, my audience will want to know that. So uh, would you please share with, with us your background and, and what led you to medicine? start with my father, a very, very wise man. May he rest in peace. Um, he never said, I want you to be a doctor. He never said that. But what he did, he would, and I should say that neither my mother or my father went to college. They're both from the South. They moved to Philadelphia for the better life. And together they worked hard and stressed education. But my father never said, I want, I want you to be a doctor. He would always talk about his journey and what brought him to Philadelphia. And he would say something like, I always wanted to be. I wish if I had had the opportunity. And that's as far as he would go. Mm. And when the opportunity presented itself for me, that seed that had been planted years and years ago just started to um, sprout and blossom. And so I credit my father planting seeds as a very young child. Yeah. So, but you must have been a very uh, talented student. I believe that you pursued chemistry as an undergraduate. So could you tell us what led you to this? You know, most students would say that chemistry is a difficult course, but you selected as a, as a major. So I was a very wayward, unfocused student, actually. Oh. I, um, I started at Howard University and stopped after a couple years to get married. And during that time, I took all sorts of courses, biochemistry, logic, Spanish, literature, I was just all over the place. And then finally, I transferred to the University of Penn, and they said, no more electives for you. <laughs> you have to choose a major. And 
that's what I did. I, I said, um, I like, I like the math. I like the science. Unlike my brother who was very literary, I did better with math and science. And so that's where I gravitated to. And then it was, well, what are you going to do? And that was an interesting choice. And by this point, I had been exposed to doctors. Um, and prior to that, I thought I was, I could never be a doctor. No one in my family was a doctor. I don't think and doctors are really smart people. And I don't, I don't think that I could do that. But then after being exposed, I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is a possibility, not a definite, but maybe a possibility. And so I applied and I applied and it happened. Well, and you applied, not only did you apply, you applied to Yale, you know, so. Yale is a very interesting place. I don't know if it would have been as easy for me at any other place. Yale has this philosophy where they say, if we accept a student, he or she's a good student. We don't rank our students. We don't even require our students to take the test. Now, there will be tests, but they don't have to take the test. They can opt out of it. We only have three requirements for graduation. You have to pass one of the national boards and pass part two of the national boards and write a thesis. Other than that, do what you will. And so that gives you all of this freedom. But it's interesting. And they say, basically, the philosophy behind that is your education is your responsibility. We've given you this opportunity. You can choose to use it or you can blow it. Your choice. We're not responsible. And it makes you, I think, more conscientious. But I didn't have to worry day to day about there's an exam coming up or I don't know where I rank in the class. And that type of day-to-day -day worry was eliminated. And so for me, that was a good thing. Fantastic. Now you used a good word a moment ago. You mentioned that you saw the possibility. And this is yeah. why the Possibility Action Network um, exists. Yeah. So, so yeah. let me ask you, so what advice would you give to young people or even to parents, you know, who want their children to consider STEM, the sciences, and even becoming medical doctors? Exposure. I think it's exposing. If you don't know what's available to you, it's hard to you could function in that role. Mm -hmm. so I think exposure, exposure right. is just so critical. And just um, <clears throat> instilling in your child as best you can um, that they are capable, you know, and that they should never underestimate their ability to learn or to achieve. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Um, I'm from a certain generation. I was born in the early 50s. And when I went to college, I had never been in an airport. I didn't know what an airport was, you know, and uh, I didn't know what the word suburbia was. And I, I said to say that during that first year, I went back home and I started talking to people about establishing what I called Operation Exposure to expose young people to some things that I hadn't seen as a kid. And that's what you're saying, aren't you? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Exposure just opens your eyes. It opens your eyes to possibilities that you might not even realize are there. Yeah, yeah. So what about those roadblocks? I mean, I don't emphasize roadblocks, but some people say that there are too many roadblocks to getting into college or you know succeeding in college or even getting into medical school. How would you respond to people who may have that thought pattern? I would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, there are roadblocks. I mean, when I started medical school, I actually had two children. Okay. I had two, um, two little girls and, um, and that's challenging, but I think challenges are there, are gifts. I've, I've, I've matured to the point, I didn't see it that way back then, to be honest, but I see it now as challenges and problems are gifts. 
that are given to a person to help them grow and to uncover just what they have inside. And you will decide if it's worth it, you know? And if it's worth it, then you, you'll find that you have something inside that helps you to accomplish, that helps you to reach whatever that goal or whatever that dream might be. Yeah, um, wow. Um, you said that you had two kids, two children and medical school. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine because graduate school, medical school, professional school is not easy, but uh, you made it, you made it work. And again, I, I really say it was that Yale curriculum which allowed enough freedom that sometimes, you know, I was more a mother than medical student. And other times I was more medical student than mother, but it all kind of worked. Yeah, but you, you clearly have a drive you mentioned your father planted the seed, but I want to know more about what drives you, what motivates you, what motivated you. Oh, um, I guess that's, that's an interesting question. I would go back to my parents, um, stressing education, and then they would take us to church. And we went to a church in Philadelphia called Sign Baptist Church. Hmm. And the Reverend was Dr. Reverend Leon Sullivan. And I remember one particular sermon that he would preach about diamonds in your own backyard. Wow. <laughs> that you don't have to go searching because more than likely there are diamonds right in your own backyard. And so I think that was instrumental for, for me. And at one point, uh, my mother was able to get me into a private school. So my middle to high school years were spent in a private school. And I would have to walk to the bus stop and take the bus out of the neighborhood and then walk to the school. And every day I would be exposed to the haves and the have-nots, mm. you know? I would see what, you know, classmates would be able to do and where they would be able to go on spring break. And then I would come back home to a different type of reality. Um, and so the, the imbalance <laughs> between the two, just based on the color of someone's skin, mm -hmm. didn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And it was never a question in my mind that it was about intelligence, that this was a superior breed of people and this was an inferior breed, that everything was equal. So if everything is otherwise equal, why should based on color, this group of people have more, have access to more than this group of people? Mm -hmm. Didn't seem right. And that drew me to the Nation of Islam. Oh, okay. And it was instrumental in hearing things like the black man supreme for the planet Earth. You know, hearing something positive, hearing a positive thing about a black person, or just seeing um the entrepreneurship that was coming out of the nation. So I think all of those things along the way made me want to have something of our own mm -hmm. that was as good as, if not better. And so that's always been um, a desire. Mm -hmm. Were you ever... Um... Uh, hit with this, I'm not good enough thought. I mean, I know ever is a long time, but yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a funny story. When I was first going to that private school, I remember my mother said, and I think she was trying to be encouraging. She said, you're just as good as anyone at that school. And I remember pausing because it had never occurred to me that I might not be, you know? <laughs> and so it was like, oh, oh. And so it took me a moment, but after getting into that school and after, you know, being able to do the schoolwork, I was able to see 
for myself that there was no premium on intelligence in one particular group. And among us all, there's this, you know, we share our differences, but there's no superior race, so to speak. Yeah, so uh, you, you mentioned um, a sermon that you heard as a child, and you mentioned the nation of Islam. So clearly, there's a, a you have a spiritual core to yourself. So how do you how do you see the world from that spiritual from a spiritual perspective? I think that um, I think there's good and evil in the world, uh -huh. and I believe that good will overcome evil in the end. Okay. I do believe that. And I believe that we all have to play our part. We all have to do our dance. We all have to move the needle further ahead. Okay, very good. Okay, so now I, I read that you once, and this is not a quote, but that you once said that you focus on health and wellness and not merely medicine. I may not have this exactly right, but if you did say something like that, what does that mean? I was trained as an allopathic medical doctor, mm -hmm. which means that I was trained about the benefit of medication and the benefit of surgical procedures in terms of helping and healing. And over the years, while I have great respect for allopathic medicine, I realized that there's so much more to health than medicine and surgery. And it's become clear to me that often we're more focused on sickness than on wellness. And that a lot of things that we could be doing to optimize our health, we don't do. We don't do, and we're looking for shortcuts and abbreviations to health, and we think that's a pill or we think that might be a surgery. And so I, I think that it behooves us to um, just reassess how we look at our health mm -hmm. and yeah. how we approach our health. Mm -hmm. Right, and to play a role in that, because I think, I, I see what you're saying. I remember once I um, had a lot going on in my life and I went to my doctor that took my blood pressure and the doctor freaked out because my blood pressure was high and gave me a prescription on the spot. Uh, it wasn't, you know, checked over a few months or a few weeks. And then it didn't go down immediately. Then she wanted to give me another prescription. I stopped and I wouldn't advise this, recommend this to anyone. I didn't take this, but I did get, go to, um, to a cardiologist who screened me and did all kinds of tests. And he said, and my blood pressure was fine when I went there, he said, you have no signs of hypertension over a period of time. So it's just interesting is that, you know, you can't get on the, on the prescription treadmill and never get off because that's what we expect when we go to a doctor, to get a script or something. You know, antihypertensives are not like antibiotics. If you have a urinary tract infection, you take antibiotics and you think after I complete the course of antibiotics, my infection will be gone. It's not that way with high blood pressure. It's not like you can take it for a little while and your high blood pressure is gone. Once you're on a high blood pressure medication, unless you do something actively to reduce it, mm -hmm. you're going to be taking that medication ongoing. I see. Uh, along with that, I also read that you said that, um, I think this might have been at your website, is that you subscribe to the philosophy, that your philosophy is based on the overall on overall female wellness, and we're getting close now to women's health. Um, can you talk to us about that, please? Uh, that is, your approach to health is to look at the overall wellness of women. Yeah. Women's health is a, a really interesting area. In some aspects, women's health gets ignored. We don't see a lot of women in studies. On the other hand, you see women's health get legislated, you know, so it's, it's a women's health is a very interesting field. Um, I think, again, it's a matter of women being in tune with their body, 
mm. and their reproductive tract and then doing those things that will optimize it and being aware, I mean, simple things like knowing your anatomy, you know, mm. knowing your female anatomy. Um, we've heard stories about um, reports about maternal mortality, particularly among African-American women. And what can we do about that? Um, or fibroid tumors, again, very prevalent among African-American women. And what can we do about it? And how does our environment, how does our food, how do uh, our products that we may use affect those things? And so bringing that all into the picture so that it's not just about taking a pill or it's not just about a procedure helps us to get a better understanding and a better grip on our health. All right. Well, and don't want to get too, too detailed about this, but back in the day, not, a, not too long ago, I heard some women say that, you know, fibroids, then the, the solution was hysterectomy. Fibroids, hysterectomy. So, I'm, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't, can't say any more about that, but I did hear conversations about that. Fibroids are, well, I should say that fi women across the globe have fibroids. But in the U.S., fibroids are very prevalent among African-American women. Um, and as a result of that, we tend to get fibroids at an earlier age. They tend to be larger um, and we tend to be more symptomatic. Um, what I found over the, over the years is that most women have heard the term fibroids, but few understand what it means or what they're talking about or treatment options. So there is a, a, a gap. Mm -hmm. It's like, I've heard the term, I, my, it's in my family, because a lot of women will say, women in my family have had it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they understand what it is. And like you just said, most of those women in the family have had hysterectomies. And so they think fibroids, hysterectomy, oh no. And that's all, they don't understand fibroids, what, you know, how do they come about? And in all fairness, we have not been doing a lot of research on fibroids. And we have not had a lot of information to give to women. And so what we basically said is when you get too symptomatic, we'll take it out, we'll do surgery. And that's been the answer. But that's not what women want. And in my mind, that's not good enough. I think we need to have a better understanding of fibroids. Why do we see this preponderance among African-American women? Uh, and what can we do about it? I mean, it's, it's something that warrants further evaluation. Right. Well, I want to probe that a little more, Dr. Raymond. So why, what, because some people would say, you know, that women would have similar or the same kinds of problems, but you reported that there are higher incidences of fibroids in black women. How would you explain that? I mean, is there um, a historic component of this? Uh, is there, I, I don't know. Um, how would you explain this? We don't know. My impression is that I think it has to do with Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Epigenetics, okay. meaning that it's, it's so fascinating. Every cell in our body mm. has the same DNA, but not every cell in our body looks the same or functions the same way, okay? And the reason for that is that different parts of the DNA get turned on and get turned off yes. so a specific function can be done. And what people are starting to discover is that what we're exposed to, what we eat, what we put in our bodies that get absorbed into our system, um, chemicals that we get exposed to can also affect our genetics. And that's the epigenetic effect. And so I believe that, or I, I think there's room for research. 
I believe that epigenetics plays a big role in the incidence of fibroids in African-American women. Mm -hmm. The reason that I say that, um, there are chemicals that are called EDCs, endocrine disruptive chemicals. These chemicals mimic hormones and they are known to affect the reproductive system. Mm they have looked at, there was a study out of George Washington when they looked at the urinary levels of this particular chemical called phthalate in women with fibroids. And there was an association scene. The higher the level of this phthalate, the bigger the fibroids. And so you wonder, could it be the chemicals that we are exposed to there were studies that say Black women get exposed to an inordinate amount of these chemicals through our hair care products. Mm. Black women use hair care products more than any other group of women. And when they tested these hair care products, overwhelmingly, they had these EDCs, these chemicals in them. They also have noticed EDCs, these chemicals in fast foods. Mm -hmm. um, they've looked at um, people who have consumed fast foods diets and compared them to others and noticed a higher level of these chemicals in their urine. So if you're using a lot of hair care products with phthalates, if you're eating fast foods, if you're eating those things which increase your level of these chemicals that can affect you, that might be why. That might be why you have them. That might be why grandma have it. And so that's what we need to further delineate and make obvious to women so that you then have a choice. You can then say, okay, I accept that and I'm still gonna use it. Or now that I know better, I will eliminate as much as possible. Now, because these chemicals are literally in the water, in the air, in the soil, in our foods, everywhere, there's no way to avoid them, but to limit as much as possible. I see. That's very interesting. You know, just parenthetically, um, I have read and heard that Black men experience prostate cancer at a higher rate than the general population. So you're right. I think we do need to do more research, more investigations in these kinds of things. But let me also, I'm sorry. No, I, I was saying it's interesting because if you take this whole idea of epigenetics a little further, now this is a stretch and this hasn't been proven as far as I'm aware, but if food and um, chemicals can affect us, is it possible that thought might affect us. And that's why when they say Black people are more stressed, that that's having a negative effect on our DNA. And that's a very real effect. You know, it's not this hypothetical um, theory. It's, it's having a certain amount of stress leads to a certain amount of changes that lead to epigenetic changes on your DNA, which puts you at an increased risk for the high blood pressure and all these other things that we see. Right, yeah, you're right. Um, we, yeah, we, and we shouldn't underestimate the impact of chronic stress, you're right, on our health. Um, but but I want, you, know, you also mentioned something that I found fascinating and I, 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 I found this somewhere, where, and you just said it, I think, but you said that food, is medicine, medicine, if you heard that. Food is, that is, you see food as medicine. And um, can you tell us more about your view of this? And yes, um, food, we have an interesting relationship with food, I think, at this point. We eat for taste, we eat for comfort. Mm. Um, but thinking that food has nutrients in it and vitamins that could impact our health. And so if we think of food as medicine, I remember stories of my mother talking about her mother. Um, they had a garden and they knew that once a year they would get a certain kind of tea to drink. 
and they would get castor oil. And if something happens, they would be sent out to get this kind of plant and come back, which means that at some level, we know that nature provides, you yes. know, and that um, if we maintain our health, you know, the food gets digested and it all breaks down into a chemical reaction when you get down to it, you know? Mm -hmm. We eat this food, it gets digested, um, glucose is produced and all these other wonderful things happen, but it boils down to a chemical reaction. And so the better um, the food um, that we give it, the more nutrients that we give it, the better for our body. And I think we know that on a real level because even though I will see patients who may not eat well, they will tell me they're taking vitamin C and vitamin D and a multivitamin and their um, elderberry and, and sea moss. And they're doing all this stuff because I think on a level they know they need the nutrition. And you're not getting a lot of nutrition if you're frying up something until it's, you know, dead and brown. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so the idea that food can heal you is amazing. There is a doctor. You mentioned um, high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. There's a doctor in Houston, Texas, a black man by the name of Dr. Baxter Montgomery. And he takes patients with um, essentially end-stage cardiovascular disease. And he puts them on a whole food plant-based diet after taking them through a detox. Mm -hmm. And he has reports of people improving. And that's with diet. Okay. Yeah. There are stories. There's a black woman. Her name is Dr. Ruby Lathan. She um, diagnosed with thyroid cancer, put herself on a whole food plant-based diet, cancer reversed. I find that amazing. That is that is amazing. That's it, absolutely it, amazing. When you're talking about cardiovascular disease, which is the number one killer in this country, being able to reverse it by changing how you eat, or cancer, which is creates such a fear in all of us, um, being able to reverse that with food, that's amazing. That, that is amazing indeed. And um, I, I think you're right when you said that uh, other places, but I'm sure you may expound upon it here, you said that our genes do not have to be our destiny. And I agree with that wholeheartedly, you know, so, yeah. Okay, so now, um, I know that um, you emphasize, and I've kind of asked about this a moment ago, but you emphasize serving women of color in your practice. And I think that is your true passion. Can you can you share with us what led you to this? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I am a woman of color. I mean, I mean, it would be odd not to want to take care of people that look like me. But also, um, when you're in medical school, you're hearing about and black women do worse here. And there's a higher death rate here. And we always seem to have this very negative outlook. I mean, it, the outcomes for us are always the worst, it seems, which is very discouraging. Um, and so I love the mindset that if you can help the worst of the worst, you're going to help everybody. I mean, the boat will lift for everybody because if you can help heal someone that has all of these problems and all of these conditions, and then you can apply what you know to help everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So um, I think you've written about the connection between depression and obesity. Now I lived in the South for most of my adult life. And is there, is there a connection and, between depression and obesity? And by the way, I lived in Mississippi, I grew up in South Carolina, and I've seen incidents of obesity across the board. So not just in, in one demographic. So I'm just interested if you've seen that in your research and your writing. I am, I am not 
by any means an expert on depression and obesity. But um, it's a tricky thing when you're talking about obesity and black women. And that's because so many of us have been put down because of the way we look. Um, and that is not the point. Um, we're not trying to look like a particular body type. Um, and I think black women to our credit have been strong enough that they've been dismissive and they've almost gone the other direction where they're going to say, I'm not trying to look like this. I'm not trying to be a Karen. I am trying to be me. And I feel very comfortable with my curves. And they don't appreciate going to the doctor's office to hear your BMI is X, Y, and Z, and you need to lose. And so it's a very sensitive mm -hmm. subject. Um, I say, I don't really stress the weight. I stress what you're eating mm -hmm. and how you're feeling. Um, that being said, a lot of black women are in isolation and the one thing we can do in isolation is eat. Mm. And so eating may be our one and only pleasure in life. And so we need to evaluate that and then do those things that will open up life for us mm -hmm. and help us to find other means of enjoyment and fulfillment. Okay. Now, I know you're also interested in global health. I mean, you've done work in Somalia, Namibia. Do you find women facing the same kinds of, of, of issues? It's a humbling experience. Um, it started out um, where I wanted to be part of a medical mission to go to some country and help and help the natives, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it was humbling in that I soon realized that while they may not have had all of the medical equipment or the fancy hospitals or the diagnostic equipment, they were managing their health in a way that I probably would have been extremely challenged to if that's all I had. I was most impressed when I went to Somaliland. Somaliland is a very interesting country. They separated themselves from Somalia and said, we're a separate nation. We're Somaliland. We have our own capital. We have our own, our own um, president. We, we are our own country, but they were not recognized by uh, the World Health Organization they weren't recognized um, as a separate country, which meant they were not entitled to get any funding because they weren't seen as a separate country. And then they decided to go for self. They decided truly to go for self. And there was one particular um, person, her name is Dr. Edna Adden. She, um, once she retired from the, uh, the, the World Health Organization, she went back to her country and uh, opened a hospital. She took her retirement money and literally funded the building of a hospital. And her goal was to not have doctors from the West come and heal us, but from doctors come and teach us and show us so that we can learn and then we can take care of ourselves. And so um, from that experience, I came away with two things. You know, I should, you know, go back home and try to take care of myself and my family and my conditions because we have enough disparities and enough problems here in the United States without me going to Somaliland to fix their problems. Mm. And so, um, so that, that was what I learned from that. The, the thought that you can um, if you choose to, you can take what you have, use your own resources and start from wherever you are and become better. Okay. And then maybe you should fix your own house first before you start coming over here, fixing us. 
Right. You know, if it's just to teach and give us knowledge, that's fine. But you're not coming over here to save us per se. And that's that's great. Yeah. Okay. So now you you earned an MBA in uh, in finance, and you I think entrepreneurship shows up in your work. So, what is your interest in? Uh, what prompted you first to get an MBA, and secondly, tell us about your. I mean, is it that you have a medical practice, or therefore you are an entrepreneur, or is there something else that's here? given an opportunity very early to have a private medical practice. And at that point, I knew nothing about running a business. Mm -hmm. I was naive and I thought all I have to do is be a good doctor and that's good enough. And then I realized that there were things like payroll <laughs> and accounting and staff management and coding of medical um, diagnosis and all this stuff that I was kind of learning trial by error. Mm -hmm. um, and I helped, I had help along the way, but I was always aware of how much I didn't know. And so when I was given the opportunity to go to business school, I said, well, at last, maybe I can kind of understand what it was and how things work and how to make things better. And so that was the impetus behind, um, that was the impetus behind uh, going to business school. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So uh, Dr. Raymond, um, today's woman, is, is your, you founded it uh, over a decade ago. What is today's woman and, and what, what are you up to these days? Oh, you know, so it, it's so many things. Um, but right now I am, it's a, I call it a boutique. I call it the opposite of what you see in most places. Most health centers are just coming together and you have these large healthcare systems um, within, within the city of Philadelphia, which is where I am. And so I said, well, no, I actually have a boutique. I have this little practice and I focus on female healthcare, you know, pelvic, vaginal, sexual health. And I really want to focus on midlife female care because there's this thing that happens to women when they start to get older. It's like, you know, go away, become invisible. You know, you, you, you're through with your reproductive years so you serve no further purpose in life. And I'm like, that is so wrong. That is so wrong. Some of the most dynamic women that I know are middle-aged and they are doing their blazing trails. And so I'm like, we need to correct this distortion. We need women to feel good about themselves and to realize by the time you get to middle age, you've been through some things and you know some things and you, you should um, take you know, a lot of pride in that. And so now it's about, at this stage, it's about optimizing your health and living your best life and then helping someone else along the way. And, and that's where the practice is now. And that's where I was. But I have to say that I've been kind of pulled in other directions because although I'm focusing on GYN, I keep hearing, but do you know a black OB doctor? I really want a black OB doctor. And this whole issue of maternal mortality, and that becomes a huge issue. And so I'm, I'm feeling like there's more to be done. I don't know quite what it is, but I'm feeling there's more to be done. Mm -hmm. That's great. And so if I, get, if I got this right, I think you also started a podcast. Um, so how's how's that going, by the way? The podcast is fine. I wish I need to have you on the podcast. Um, <laughs> and it started because everything was so dismal about Black women's health. I say if we keep saying this, there's just going to be learned helplessness. It's going to be well, why try? 
Why, why even aim for something higher if the odds are stacked against me? And so it just became a platform highlighting Black women, highlighting Black women in health and not in health, because whenever a Black woman is um, defying the odds, you know, that's inspiring. And there have been some great stories. I remember there were two Black female journalists who were the first to kind of point out that Black folks were dying at a higher rate from COVID than was suspected because the earlier impression was Black folks didn't get COVID, you know? And then these two Black females published um, reports out of looking at um, statistics taken out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which show, well, actually that's not true. You know, that we are being disproportionately affected to black women doing it. Or you, or you encounter black women in areas of expertise that you just say, wow, blow me away. Yeah. Fantastic. I didn't know we were doing that. And so it's that type of exposure. Or another one of my favorites was, and this is not, it didn't start out well. Um, she was unfortunately diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. And triple negative breast cancer is actually more common in African-American women. And, um, and that was the bad news. But then this particular podcast, she had her, her, her girlfriend, her best friend, and a breast surgeon all got together. And the support and the information that got shared at that podcast, and actually it was three or four podcasts over a period of time. It was just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I learned about, and I'll just tease it here, if anyone wants to know more about it, they can go to your website. But I learned about the Saran, if I'm pronouncing this right, the Saran method from a podcast on your site. So, so, so I have the best patients. Um, and I am always impressed with young Black women who seem to be very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And this was a very entrepreneurial Black woman who wanted to help other Black women. Mm -hmm. And it was like, tell me more and so she was very good That's you know great. there was another young black woman who's a dietitian who wanted to talk to black well everyone but black people in particular about no matter what your socioeconomic level is you can improve what you're eating right. you know right. um and so they are just you know, there's a lot of positive things going on. And if we can just let each other know about what's going on, then, you know, as they say in the Bible, the dry bones start to connect. That's right. That's awesome. Well, um, Dr. Raymond, is there anything else that you care to share with us, with our audience before we leave today? I do. I was, I was looking in the news today and, um, they were congratulating um, Eric Adams. He was elected as the mayor of New York City. A black man, he used to be a policeman who says that he actually cured himself by going on a vegan diet. He oh. says that in 2016, he was losing his eyesight from his left eye. Um, he was hypertensive, he had high cholesterol, and his hemoglobin A1C, if anyone's a, a diabetic, that's a measure of your glucose levels over a time period, was in the high teens. You wanted to be closer to six or seven. Diagnosed with that, went to the doctor and the doctor said, yes, you're going blind and you might lose a limb and you are definitely diabetic and I'm putting you on two different medications. Mm -hmm. And he said, I couldn't accept that. And he went back home and Googled how to reverse diabetes and found these doctors who were talking about changing. No, I'm sorry. He says prior to that, he went to five other doctors to get a second opinion. 
and they all pretty much said the same thing. And then he finally found a whole food plant-based diet. And he said, a doctor that espoused a whole food plant-based diet. And he said that that's what he did. Hmm. That's what he did. That's and he said that within three weeks of changing his diet, his, eyes, his eyesight and his eyes started to come back. His cholesterol started to come down within three months and he was taken off all of his medications. And to this day, he is a vegan. And I say that because when people hear vegan or vegan diet or whole foods, they think that's not something black people do, you know, <laughs> or they think maybe women do that, but men, guys, guys don't do that kind of stuff. That's, that's for, you know, the weak the weaklings. And so, um, He's an example of a black man, a black man, a man's man, a, you know, a former police cop that was able to reverse his health, improve his health, I should say, by, um, by what he put in his mouth. And that's huge. That's revolutionary. That's a game changer for sure. And, it's uh, a game changer. Yeah, yes. That's, that's, that's right. So, um, is there one book? Because I just I knew that know that you are a vegan. Is there one book or one website that you would recommend that we uh, consider if you wanted to learn more? There are so many. I, I can't think. And actually, I think YouTube is probably a good place. Okay. I mean, YouTube. There, there are black vegans all over. There's a Tracy. Uh, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, there's Dr. Baxter Montgomery has a book. Um, there are, if you go to amazon.com, you can find them, but you can also just Google, you can get recipes. It is, if you look, you can find, no that doubt. Sounds, that sounds good. Sounds good. Well, Dr. Raymond, it has been a pleasure having you on the show today. Um, I'm so happy that you do, talked with me because someone said, to, you know, hey, you're a guy, she's not gonna talk to you. But I said, look, I, I had a mom, I had five sisters and I got a daughter, why not? <laughs> so thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I know that you're in Philadelphia. So if, if you're listening to the show and you're in Philadelphia, please check out Dr. Dr. Raymond, but you also have a website that I think offers some good information, including your podcast. What is that web address? www.drramon.com and doctor is spelled out d-o-c-t-o-r-r-a-h-m-a-n.com and the pod yeah the podcast is black women's health and um we are still working on that directory we're working on a directory highlighting um black doctors nationally so Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Dr. Rahman, for being with us today. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast with your host, Stephen Middleton, aka Possibility Man. Today we have had Dr. Rahman on our show. She is an OBG and doctor in Philadelphia. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for other programs with the Possibility Action Network.